Hello, I'm Verity Firth. I'm the Executive Director of Social Justice at the University of Technology Sydney's Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion. This is After Me Too, Stories of Social Change. Everyone deserves justice, right? Equality before the law is fundamental to our democracy. But the practice of the law, like any other profession, is infused with a whole range of cultural and gender biases. It's not like prejudice gets left behind when you enter the courtroom. This episode is about the criminal justice system. Our producer, Ollie Henderson, has more. Just a heads up, we'll be talking about sexual violence in this episode. If this raises any concerns for you, you're in need of help or just someone to talk to, give Lifeline a call on 13 11 14. You could also call the New South Wales Rape Crisis Centre on 1800 424 017. I know it's really difficult, I know it's really hard to seek assistance in the first place. This is Karen Willis, the Executive Officer of the New South Wales Rape Crisis Centre. But the overall message is it's never your fault, you've never done anything to ask for or deserve and the responsibility for this behaviour is absolutely always with the offender and the system that supports the offender in those behaviours and that's where the problem is and that's what we've got to change. Okay, now for the show. Allô? Bonjour, Bonjour Véronique, ça va? Oui, ça va. Alors, j'étais pas sûre si on faisait vidéo ou, euh, ou appel téléphonique. Euh... This is Veronique. Oui, 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 mais je vous vois pas en fait parce que du coup, je suis derrière l'ordinateur. And this is Joanna, one of our producers. Pas de problème. Mais... <rire> ah là là. Bon, bah alors, qu'est-ce que on va commencer Peut-être you want to speak in English Yeah, go ahead. All right, Veronique, tell us a bit about your your story. When when did the abuse start Well, the clearest memory I have is when I was approximately five years old. Veronique was born in Mauritius, a small island nation off the southeast coast of Africa. She grew up with seven brothers and sisters. She says the house in Mauritius was full of people, and her brothers and sisters were always running around barefoot, in and out the door. But for Veronique... The family home wasn't just about childhood games. It first takes a lot of coercing, so what we call grooming, I suppose, is what they call it. And that comes with in the shape of little gifts, so lollies, chocolate bars and toys, and gradually it would become more physical contact, come and sit on my lap and I, you know, and eat the ice cream or come and sit on my lap and eat the It was during this time when the house was loud and busy and filled with distractions, the Veronique's half-brother, the eldest of seven children, began his attacks. Somehow seems more and more natural. So, and it's, you know, that plays into another psychology as well where you start feeling that you're somehow more complicit. In 1987, when she was just 11 years old, her family moved to Australia in search of a better life. But the pain and abuse that started on Mauritius came with her, and not just in the form of her stepbrother. Basically, I grew up in an environment where the matriarch, I would rather call her that than the mother, played a very decisive part in the sexual assault lasting for as long as it did. So it lasted for about 11 years. So I did speak to her on a number of occasions about what had happened. So I went to her to seek help. And the way she reacted was basically to blame me 
telling me, you know, what was I doing in my bedroom at the time? You know, why was I sleeping there at the time? Definitely made me feel very guilty um, for, for, for what had happened, but also for potentially shaming the family. Why do you think your mother denied the abuse? How did it feel like? What did I feel? I felt trapped, you know. I, I betrayed, abandoned, you know. Um, it taught me helplessness. Um, it made the world feel very unsafe, very confusing, very lonely. And it really damaged my relationship with the world and with myself. And it took me years to fix all that. Um, so it was a very, it, for me, it was almost as painful as the assault I was experiencing, almost as damaging anyway. There were symptoms. I mean, I was often sick, but no one paid attention. Her mother knew. She told her aunts. Veronique consistently told people she trusted. When she told friends or family members, her mother would deny it, telling them Veronique was promiscuous and that her brother was just curious and that everything was normal. It takes almost a village to allow sexual violence to occur. So it may seem a bit controversial because we like to strictly blame the perpetrator, but I think it takes a whole entire community to create an environment where that dynamic is allowed to take place. For a long time, this is where Veronique's story ended. Until at the age of 19, she decided to call the police. The police officer expressed sympathy towards my call. She said, you know, this, it would just be too hard to prove. So I gave that up. From the time Veronique was a child, she sought help, first from her family and then from the criminal justice system. All she wanted was the abuse to stop. But for victims of sexual violence the justice system doesn't always deliver. And, you know, and that's something that we talk about in feminist legal theory has been really important in challenging the idea that harms to men and harms to property have been valued and that law has found it a bit harder to get around harms that women experience. This is Jane Wagman. She's a senior lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney. I specialise in legal responses to violence against women, particularly domestic violence or intimate partner violence. I've actually had quite a lot of work experience in this area. I've been working in the area for over 20 years, uh, which makes me seem quite old. Jane has worked on the front line of legal response to violence against women. She got her start working at community legal centres. There was a job in a community legal centre doing domestic violence work, and I thought, well, if I practice, that's the one thing I would like to do. And soon started representing victims of domestic and sexual violence in court. And I did a lot of cases, one after the other, so it was often tiring. I had often not met my clients until I met them at court. And you had to try to build trust with people over a very short period of time and suddenly your matter was called into court and you needed to tell the magistrate what had been taking place in order to get a protection order. And, of course, that short time frame often meant that women didn't necessarily feel comfortable telling you about everything that had taken place, particularly when you start to get into sexual violence. So it was quite high-pressured. Jane started practising in the late 90s, and she says since then, the law has changed a great deal, and mostly for the better. I think we often forget, whilst there's still more to be done, in fact a lot has changed. 
But despite law reform seeking to better understand women's experiences of the criminal justice system, these days you might be more likely to hear about a sexual assault trial on Twitter. The Me Too campaign has invited women to share their stories online and on social media. Me Too. Me Too. Me Too. Me Too. Me Too. Me Too is very much saying, you know, I want to share my story so that people realise that they're not alone. Women from all over the world have come forward to talk about their experiences of sexual assault and harassment. Me Too. Me Too. Me Too many of whom have never come forward before. And even if they did come forward, it doesn't mean that they got justice. Jane says our criminal justice system is just not designed for victims. And there are specific moments, or what she calls points of attrition, that might make people like Veronique just drop out. People fall out of the system at various points. So one, they might not report to the police. So that's your first point of attrition. For most of Veronique's childhood, she did not come forward. She says the denial of the abuse from her family and authority figures prevented her from speaking out. So I kind of eventually resigned myself to not saying it. One of the, the biggest barriers is, in fact, women themselves not reporting If it's a family member or a cohabitating partner, you can imagine how hard it is to even recognise and identify that you have been sexually assaulted by your partner. I mean, just to be able to name it must be one of the most difficult things. And so we often, at least my experience with some of the women that I've spoken to, is it hasn't been until some time afterwards, often after they've separated from their partner or moved away from the family, that they've been able to actually name it as a sexual offence. It took Veronique nearly 10 years to finally come forward. And when she did... I spoke to a woman police officer, but she goes, you know, like, there's nothing we can do for you. They told her the police only deal with bruises and blood, not childhood memories. I was dismayed. Like, I was like, okay, well, that's it. He's gotten away with what he's done. So for women who do find the courage to come forward, it can be difficult for them to provide the type of evidence that would satisfy police. This tends to be the biggest point of attrition. And yet we know that many sexual offences, particularly between partners and family members, there are no independent witnesses to corroborate that event. But the lack of evidence is not the only reason sexual violence goes unreported. So, for example, for Indigenous women, the history of poor relationships with the police, the overcriminalisation of Indigenous people in particular, may mean that they feel less able to talk to the police because they don't think they'll be believed. And they also may fear an over-criminal response in relation to what they've reported. In 2011, Veronique decided to file another complaint with the police. But this time, things were different. Veronique had heard that her half-brother was now living with a woman, a woman who had two young children. For her, it was more important to report now that others were in the same danger she faced as a child. And for the police... This new threat was enough to push Veronique's case to trial. Just taken back by the actual intensity of the process and the seriousness of it. As Veronique walked into the courtroom, she knew she would be reminded of what she faced as a child. I felt really tiny. I felt like I was kind of like each step I was taking towards a witness stand, I was losing losing my age and regressing back to being... 
you know, each step I was like 15, 16, you know, 14, 13, and then I was, I sat down and I was five years old. She knew the defence would attack her character and credibility, just like her mother did. But nothing weighed on Veronique as much as knowing she would have to face the man who she avoided for 20 years, the man who abused her. There's complete silence and you have the 12 jurors looking at you and the judge sitting on that throne and, and you're trying to avoid looking at the, the, the accused and then you get placed into your witness stand. I brought a picture of my my daughter with me just as a way of actually just bringing back, me back to focus. In my head, I'm also going through what is he thinking? How much pleasure is he taking from this? Because every word that I said, all the details that I kind of explored, all the details of the violence that I ex, um, experienced, I visually saw them. I felt them at the time almost, you know, like I, it's almost like you're, you're there. I was reliving that. So if I was reliving it, was he reliving that? And he obviously was reliving it in a moment of pleasure. It's extremely vulnerable position to be into because the last thing you want to do is give your power to the accused, to the perpetrator. In my head anyway, the last thing I wanted to do was to crumble in his presence because all of the message I wanted to send to him is like, I'm not your victim anymore. And yet the system and the process puts you in a position of victim. Many victims experience the trial as a traumatic process and I'm sure for those people that are familiar with the area, some victims do report the trial being the same as the assault. And Jane says that even though the laws and the courts are doing their best to address how traumatising the trial is for the victim. We can't shed our knowledge, our experiences. When you walk into a courtroom, you bring the systemic biases of society along with you. In this adversarial system, you will still find defence lawyers who, in their cross-examination, because they're representing the defendant, they will ask the woman questions about your lying, your vindictive, you're doing this for crime compensation. You know, those things that might put in the jury's mind reasonable doubt. You know, why didn't you report straight away? Um, those kinds of things. So even though the judge will give a warning on top of that, if people have already got that sort of cultural understanding or myth or stereotype in their mind, it might play on it, particularly for a jury member. More than five years passed from the time Veronique gave her first statement in court to the final sentencing. Two of those years were spent waiting for the initial hearing and a further year before the case was heard in the county court. Meanwhile, he was allowed to roam free in society Veronique says the delays in process were torture. Sexual violence is about control and power in great part. You know, obviously there's a sexual element, but it is about an abuse of control and power. We shouldn't forget that that's therefore in his nature to want to be in control. And so if he has the possibility to get away with it, why wouldn't he exploit it? And unfortunately, the system actually offers him that opportunity. Veronique was actually successful in her first court hearing. But then came the appeal. So then once you get a conviction, of course, the person that's been convicted has a possibility of appealing that conviction. 
So it means that the trial process, if a victim does proceed through this entire trial process, it might have taken a number of years to get the conviction and then suddenly they face an appeal. And then let's say they do the appeal and let's say the appeal is successful, then it will go back for a retrial and you're asking them to do it all over again. He was able to have an appeal. He was able to have a second court case. And all that because he knew that the burden of proof is so high that his chances of him actually being found not guilty was great. Veronique felt a power imbalance throughout the whole trial and subsequent appeal. But she wasn't the only one that felt stripped of her story. Veronique's my sister, younger sister. This is Priscilla. Just like Veronique, Priscilla was abused by her half-brother, the same half-brother, back on Mauritius. And just like Veronique, her calls for help were ignored by her mother and authority figures for years. Is my power, is my story going to be believed, is someone someone out there going to say the three words, I believe you. During the first trial, Priscilla was able to tell her story. She was able to take her story back. She felt empowered. She felt good. I feel like I can giggle. And actually, I'm actually, it's freer. I don't know, relieved, empowered, um, confident. So I was like, wow, you know. And then that part, at least, I could take back ownership. But things went differently during the second hearing. During the first trial, Priscilla had told her story of abuse before the courts. But she wasn't allowed to do the same in her second trial. I get this phone call saying they've rejected your your side. The courts have rejected your side of, you know, the case. Because her abuse happened overseas, the defence was able to get the judge to exclude her testimony. Excuse me? Like what? Like it didn't happen? Well, you know. I said, no, I don't. What's the court doing? What's the system doing? And then after that being told, oh, you're being called as a witness. So I got excited again thinking, oh, we're doing it again. So on the same side. Oh, no, you're not. I'm like, hang on a minute, excuse me. Um, It's for the other side. During the first trial, Priscilla had been asked if she remembered her half-brother ever abusing Veronique. She said no. So what happened is that she wasn't allowed to testify about her own abuse, but she was utilised by the defence team to testify in favour of the perpetrator by basically saying that she didn't know anything about what had happened to me. And that was incredibly traumatising for her to be utilised by the perpetrator who knew he was guilty and who still wanted to use her. And I really think that that in itself is an example of how there's very little compassion and, uh, and interest in the well-being of the, pe- of the people who've experienced crime, and in my case, sexual crimes. So there's very little compassion. And so the system, the court system, is like a perpetrator. And once again, Priscilla was forced into the role of a victim. She felt responsible. 
And so I, I, I apologised profusely to Vin. and I said, I'm so sorry. Is Maybe there was something I said or did that cause them to think, oh, we're going to use that to advantage. They literally took my, my life story, my experience, my heartache, and I'm going to be blunt, okay? It's like being raped again. Veronique's half-brother was sentenced in 2016 to four years and five months imprisonment with a three-year non-parole sentence. He should be out by the end of the year. Did the justice system let me down? Yes. Even after he's found guilty, he still has the power. Would you do it again? Yes. Yes, I, I feel like I did my job and it's also released me from the whole dynamic that put me into the role of a victim. And, um, and yeah, I, I definitely would do it again. I'm Verity Firth, and you are listening to After Me Too, Stories of Social Change. So we're back in the studio now with our producer, Ollie Henderson. Hi, Verity. How are you? (laughs) Good, thanks. What did you think of the episode? I really liked it. I mean, it was a really emotional listen, um, Mm. but it was powerful. You know, it... It is incredible because in 2015, there were just under 11,000 sexual offence incidences recorded or, in other words, reported to the police. Right. But only 16% of those ended up in the court system. So, in other words, 85% of reported cases never came before a court. Wow, that's huge. And I'm I'm sure there are plenty that don't even make it to the police station. Exactly, right. And even of all of those cases, only 523 people actually received a sentence. So out of the 11,000 that went to the police station, 16% went to the courts. And then what was the number? 523 people at the end of this, well, perpetrators actually received a sentence. Wow. So it is. So what fascinates, I mean, you know, there's all sorts of things to unpick in that. But what interested me most about the end of this podcast is despite all of that, Veronique still said she'd do it again. You know, it still gave her some sense of power and of agency to tell her story. Yeah. You know, it's so hard to put yourself in her shoes. I couldn't even imagine what, what she went through. But, you know, it is about justice, isn't it? You know, that's why we go to the courts. Yeah. I'm glad that she she felt she got it. 
It is difficult. You know, those on trial for sexual assault are three times more likely to be acquitted than the average of those accused for any other offence, right? Wow. Why do you think that is? Well, there's a whole range of things. I mean, the law has got better. It's not, mm. you know, the good The good news is, you know, even definitions of consent are much better than they used to be in the olden days. I mean, mm. when I went to law school in the early 90s, it was still a totally subjective view of what consent was. So basically, if the, if the perpetrator believed there was consent, there was consent, you know. Right. So it's got a lot better, you know. It's become a lot more objective in, in a legal sense and, and there is a lot more active um, ways consent needs to be expressed, mm. right, for it to be considered um, consent. In fact, after the recent Four Corners investigation into the Lazarus case in New South Wales, which was the case where the young man was found not guilty of sexual assault outside his father's nightclub, the New South Wales government has launched a review into sexual consent definitions. So that's really interesting. And the good news there is that the University of Technology, Sydney, as an institution, has made a submission to the New South Wales Law Reform Commission. So has made a submission. And we've recommended that we should be moving towards a free agreement model of consent in New South Wales. So what exactly is a free agreement model? Right. So what a free agreement model is, is at the moment or what's at least been happening in the courts around interpretation is that it's a passive model. What we mean by that is it's based on the assumption that unless there's active resistance, consent may be assumed, right? Mm. So unless someone's really, really actively saying, no, 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 consent may be assumed. What the free agreement model is, is it sort of reverses that. Proof that the complainant did not communicate consent is sufficient to establish absence of consent. Mm. So in other words, it's about an active indication of consent being necessary before engaging in sexual activity. Um, doesn't have to necessarily even be verbal, but it has to be an active indication of consent. But despite all of that, despite the improvements in the, I suppose, black letter definitions of consent in the law, there are still all sorts of cultural gender biases and assumptions that leak their way into the courtrooms, into both all the judges and into the barristers. I mean, I was just looking at this case the other day where um, a barrister in 2016 still defended a taxi driver charged with sexual assault by arguing that the attack would not have happened if the woman had sat in the back seat. Right. So <laughs> what kind of a message does that send to people, you know? It's really uh, terrible. It's terrible because it's still victim blaming and it's still mm. the onus is on the woman. Um, to She hasn't protected herself properly from the, you know, uncontrollable behaviour of men. So the law isn't perfect. Mm. It will never be perfect. And I think probably what this episode tells us is constant vigilance and constant transparency about the decisions that are being made in our courts and, and the need for ongoing law reform in this space. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it is really good that that such developments have, have happened. Like even in, I think, was it in the 80s where you could rape your wife and mm. it was fine? You know, I, I'm glad we don't live in, in that world anymore. Yeah. Mm. It's getting better. The message is it's getting better, <laughs> but there is still much more to be done. And the real, the, the things that will ultimately change this are the fundamental cultural shifts, you know, the fundamental yeah. shifts around gender equality and respect for women. Absolutely. Because I guess at the end of the day, 
the professionals in the court system, the judges, the barristers, you know, they're all people before they walk into that courtroom. You know, it will, it'll happen when the cultural shifts happen. Yeah. This episode was a collaboration between the Centre of Social Justice and Inclusion from the University of Technology, Sydney, and 2SER 107.3. Our producers are Nina Copel, Ollie Henderson, Miles Herbert and Joanna Cabert. A big thanks also to Laura Oxley from the Centre. This podcast was made on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation.